Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm thrilled to be back with you for our fourth season and to share discussions with more truly extraordinary people. But before we get revved up, I want to remind listeners that this podcast is very intentional in its focus. Each and every one of the 51 guests we've had so far has been handpicked, and it's because their work in some meaningful way uniquely and powerfully supports the need to fully reinvent workplace leadership and elevate human thriving. It's not a stretch of the imagination to think that everyone listening in is familiar with at least one company that says, our people are our greatest asset, and then routinely lead and manage in ways that undermine their credibility. And honestly, I still believe most workplace leaders aren't fully convinced that caring more about their people will truly produce superior results. So they say all the right things publicly and then instinctively make business decisions aligned to traditional leadership thinking. And in the process, of course, they unwittingly undermine employee trust, loyalty and engagement, and their organization's full potential is never realized. So my mission, just as a reminder, especially to anyone who's listening in for the first time, is to help convince workplace leaders that the way to achieve uncommon performance is to engage and affect the hearts and people. Leading with a greater balance of mind and heart is the proven way of driving results because it inherently supports the needs, hopes, and desires of the people who make them happen. With all that said, I am thrilled to welcome my first guest of the new season, Wharton Business School professor, Seagal Barsade. Truth be told, I've been trying to get Seagal to come on the podcast for nearly a year, and it's because her compelling research proves that leaders who want more engaged and high-performing employees must invest in understanding what motivates human beings in their work lives and pay greater attention to the emotional side of their organizational culture. I want you to know this is cutting edge thinking, anchored to the idea that feelings and emotions have profound influence over human behavior and engagement at work, and ultimately on organizational productivity and profitability. And it rubs up against a longstanding history of leaders treating emotions as a distraction, as a nuisance. Another reason I've been hounding Seagal to join me is because she believes companionate love is characteristic of high performing cultures. And as we've been discussing here now for almost two years, workplaces that incorporate love into their overall leadership strategy, I am certain will crack the code of employee engagement like never before. We're gonna fully discuss all of this, but let me first introduce Seagal. Since 2003, she's been the Joseph Frank Bernstein Professor of Management at the Wharton School, and previously spent a decade on the Yale University faculty. She earned her undergraduate degree at UCLA and her PhD at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. And as you're about to hear, she's brilliant. And I am now thrilled to finally welcome you to the podcast, Sagal Barse. Thank you very much. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I am delighted to be here. Well-deserved. You know you are our first choice to kick off the fourth season, so well-deserved. I want to get going here, and I'm so excited to talk to you, to be honest with you. So if <laughs> if it's showing early on, you know, I'll just be uh, wearing my heart on my sleeve here, if you will. Sure. You were a student at UCLA undergrad, and you were thinking about going into clinical psychology, and then had this change of heart where you decided... I want to have an impact on human well-being by influencing organizational behavior. 
And I find that stunning. And so my first question is, what was the influence? What gave you this direction for your career? So it was, it was really interesting. I, I had actually begun my studies at UCLA in economics, which was really the only acceptable major coming from a family of engineering emphasis. <laughs> And I quickly realized that, you know, I mean, I loved microeconomics, but my real interest was psychology. And then what happened was that in my senior year, I did an honors thesis with Professor Burt Raven, who's a very well-known psychologist in the field of social influence. And I also took a class in a subject I had never heard of, which was industrial organizational psychology. And I loved it. And then what happened was I needed to make a decision, which is, was I really indeed going to go into clinical or was I going to go into, at the time, what I thought was industrial organizational psychology? And I later found out there was this field of organizational behavior and they're very similar. And I made the decision that not everybody needed or wanted a therapist, but that everybody worked. And that if I could do something to help better understand and then change people's work lives for the better, that I could have sort of even more impact. And that was the direction that I took. How did you associate work and human well-being? So in other words, you were getting a taste of psychology. You were apparently very good at it. Why not just go into helping people individually through psychology? What was it that influenced you to say, you know what, if we change some behaviors in companies, I can actually have a big impact. I mean, I'm guessing that that's kind of what the thought process was, but I'm sure there's much more to the story. Yeah, well, and actually it relates very much to what I did when I graduated. So I didn't immediately go to grad school. I worked first, which is something I very, very strongly recommend for anybody who's considering a, you know, a doctorate in any kind of applied field. And when I was at work, I could see sort of firsthand, wow, you know, how are people responding, what it's like. But it's funny because I have to say, in some ways, though, it was just a little bit more abstract than that. Like, I just had this, also this intuition, because I had already decided, really, now that I think about it, that I was going to be going, likely going into OB before I even went to work. And in fact, part of the reason I chose the jobs I did is because I wanted to get kind of a wide variety of a view. It was interesting. I just had the insight. It wasn't It wasn't from kind of a directly applied view, except for in one important way, I suppose, and I shouldn't dismiss that, which is that both my parents worked. So my mom was a middle manager in computers. My father was uh, an engineer um, across a couple of companies and in senior management. And every day at the dinner table, we would have conversations about our days and they would talk about their days and particularly my dad. And I I really grew up at the dinner table listening to all of these kind of human dynamics of management. He wasn't talking about the technical side. He was talking about the human side and the management side. And so I think that gave me a huge advantage in understanding how critical work life was very, very early on. So it's not like I had to go out and experience it and say, oh, yeah, this matters. I knew it mattered from, in essence, what I had been trained in from home. Was your dad telling happy stories? He was telling both. Yeah. There were stories with how to how to deal with difficult people, which at some point was one of my favorite books. You know, like the successes, you know, what happens when things go well. My mom would talk about inner relationships with people too, and it ran the gamut. And then, of course, even as a teenager and through college, I worked. So I was just very conscious of the fact that people's 
work lives were a tremendously powerful part of what they did. And if nothing else, was a major part of how they spent their days. When you went to work, so after you graduated from UCLA, where did you go to work? What was the industry? And then what was your take on how people were feeling in their jobs? Yeah, so it was very funny because when I I graduated from UCLA, it's very different than it is now. Like, I mean, the Career Center literally had like little postings on it and, and it wasn't this sort of whole mechanism. And also I went immediately abroad at that point. I actually um, went to Israel where I spent time before returning to the States. And so I actually got a position. Nobody wanted to make me CEO or head of HR, which was very disappointing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At 22. Mm -hmm. To the younger me, right, exactly. And it's like, but wait, I've got Phi Beta Kappa. I don't understand. (laughs) And I got a job working for an international concrete company, actually, as the executive assistant to the CEO. And it was a fabulous position because it really gave me a window into senior management. And he was a Tony, actually. He was just a wonderful boss. And if you think about sort of your work in leading from the heart, I mean, he just was he just was incredibly compassionate and kind and interesting. And, and he also really let me do much more than I think what the position normally would let you do. Mm-hmm. And then after I came back to the States, I worked at another couple of companies, including a startup. And I really worked with companies. In most situations, I was sort of the exec assistant to senior leadership. And so I managed to get a really interesting view and a really first row view of leadership, which influenced me going forward. Well, I guess I'm wondering if I'm just going to ask the question. At some point in your experience before you went to Cal for your PhD or even while you were there, did you realize that this was a calling for you? Because you were paying attention at the dinner table to your parents' stories where some kids were like, do we have to be talking about this all the time? You know what I mean? And you're like, hey, tell us more about, you know, what was going on at work. So I'm just curious as to whether or not you really anchored in on, hey, I was put here to do this. You know, that's such an interesting insight you bring up, because when I look back at it, it seems very clear in the sense that I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. And I hadn't thought about it in the calling in that way at the time. But one of the pieces of feedback that I've always gotten, even sort of very early on with my work, both in academia, but also, you know, the consulting work I do, because I I definitely consult and I, you know, do executive education, because I think if you're going to, if you're going to study people in organizations, you need to continue to spend time with them. And one of the pieces of feedback, even earlier in my career, was I had sort of an intuitive understanding of what was going on in situations in which I didn't have direct experience. And so when I think about callings, I think it's kind of a combination of, yes, paying a lot of attention, having a tremendous deal of interest, and sort of having a knack for it, that kind of an insight and an understanding for it. Interesting. Well, I'm glad I asked the question. (laughs) You know, when it comes to workplace leadership, we've always viewed this is something I'm very familiar with. We have always viewed feelings and emotions as a distraction. You use a great word to describe it. You call it noise, which I totally agree with. And yet you found that how people feel at work proves to have 
profound influence over their choices and their behaviors. So let's start there and dig into your work. What should managers know and understand most about this? So I really appreciate you mentioning the noise. When I teach emotions and emotional intelligence, what I say to folks is that if you leave with nothing else but this, it's that emotions are not noise, they are data. And they're data not only about how people feel, but how they will think and how they will behave. And my biggest takeaway to managers about this is that emotions, because they directly influence our thinking and our behavior and our performance, if you ignore them, you're sort of playing with one hand tied behind your back. I mean, I would never say don't pay attention to cognitions, right? Of course they matter. But emotions matter just as much because they influence what people are going to do at work and they influence how well they're going to perform and they influence how they get along with others and they influence how long they're going to stay and they influence what kind of leaders they are. You know, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on of how emotions influence every aspect of people's work lives. And so if you ignore them or say they're not important, you're missing out on an entire area of data that you could use to make people's work lives not only better, but more effective. So I said at the beginning that I was very excited about having you on, and it's really because of what you just articulated that made me so excited. I have not seen that many prestigious academicians, if you will, people from schools are as impressive as Wharton, even thinking like this. And the word thinking is sort of amusing to me because, (laughs) right, we're talking about feelings and emotions. But so it makes me wonder. So when I first read this in your work, I was like, hallelujah, we're really talking about the whole essence of everything, what this whole podcast is about. And then I started thinking, well, is it because we just don't like dealing with the feelings and emotions. So we just sort of wrote it off and said, you know, leave your troubles at the door. And I really want to know much about you. Just do your job and you'll get your paycheck and go home. That's kind of the relationship that we want to have. I mean, why if we repressed our understanding of what you just articulated so well? Like, why are we repressing the idea that feelings and emotions play an enormous role in in driving engagement and teamwork and satisfaction and ultimately even financial performance. Yeah, I think there's sort of a long history back. And so, you know, if you think the theory of the tripartite mind, the idea is that the mind is divided into emotions, cognition and motivation. And if any of them ever touched each other, you know, they never meet. And if they did, it was very, very bad. And this was a theory by Descartes, who was a very, very wise man, but he got this one wrong which is that, in fact, all our emotions and our cognitions are completely intertwined with one another, and that emotions also don't have to have a negative outcome. I think there's this lay view that to the degree you even pay attention to emotions, that it's going to make you like a poor decision maker, or it's going to kind of take you over, and you're not going to be in control. Now, Of course, there are emotions that make us feel that way, right? I mean, just like, by the way, there are cognitions that can make us feel that way. And I think that that view of emotions as this sort of evil thing that takes control has just sort of perpetuated and and sort of the supremacy of cognition. And well, if you're cognitive, then of course, you're not going to pay any attention to your emotions and you're going to be like the smartest person around, 
And the irony is that it is so completely wrong. And so, for example, there's a huge amount of research showing that people who are in a mildly positive mood are actually better decision makers and more analytical than people who are in neutral. And there was in the field a big debate about this originally, which I won't uh, bore your listeners with, but you know, all the current meta-analysis show that that's the case. And this is something that people don't know. Like it is actually better to be in a mildly positive mood than it is to be in neutral. Now, I should point out that this doesn't mean that all negative emotions are bad. In fact, negative emotions are incredibly critical for things like calling our attention to problems, you know, and in certain situations, they can be helpful. But in a more long-term way, it's really the positive emotions. The best resistance I can think of was very early on in my career, I interviewed a bank vice president, and I said, so tell me about emotions at your bank. And he looked at me and he said, professor, we have no emotions at our bank. And if we did, we'd have to get rid of them because they have no room in business. And luckily, though, what I would say is that when I started studying this, you know, at this point, I guess over 25 years ago, it really was a topic that very few people were touching, both in industry as well as in academia. But now it's become a very robust area of research. In fact, Probably about 10 years ago, I wrote an article with Art Brief and Sandra Spataro called The Affective Revolution in Organizational Behavior. I think what also has helped in business is that the concept of emotional intelligence was really sort of advertised and got out there um, in the popular press. And so I think there's a lot more openness now to the role of emotions. And what I have found is that even when I'm dealing with, let's say, populations of people who wouldn't be, you would think, the first in line to be kind of all about emotions. When you explain the science to them and you lay out all of our findings, I find them actually to be a very welcoming audience. Well, interestingly, though, I mean, you mentioned Descartes, and he famously said, I think, therefore, I am. You know, I actually worked in banking. I worked in financial <laughs> services for most of my career, and I was called the outlier. And I don't think people understood why I was the outlier. They just knew that I was approaching management very, very differently. And I was approaching it from the point of view that you just described, which is much more interested in how I was making people feel, knowing that when they were experiencing positive feelings and emotions, they generally were doing extraordinary things. And so it's not to say, you know, that I wasn't demanding or expecting, you know, high achievement and holding people accountable and having difficult conversations when people weren't meeting those expectations. But ultimately, it was a environment where people wanted to be a part of it because, they knew that they were thriving. And so it's interesting yeah. because that mentality of what you just described in is not just in banking. We still think that we want the smartest managers, we want, you know, the brainiest people. And so how do we get managers to start thinking about how do I create an environment? We're going to talk about cultures here in a minute, but how do we create a place where people feel the way that you just described it so that we know that we're creating an optimal place for them to work? Well, I think there are two sort of sources for this. One is the behavior of the manager, him or herself. We know that the most important relationship employees generally tend to have on the job is with their manager. 
And so the way that the manager is treating their employees and everything that comes with that is absolutely key. Even if you find yourself in a company, and we're going to talk about culture in a moment, but let's say that isn't structurally set up for it as well. So let's say there are things in the structure that aren't as good. A manager could go a long way to buffering the employee. But what I would also say to kind of the managers of managers is that supporting your managers in this through structural situations that be it how you pay people or how your organization is literally set up or things that, you know, policies and procedures that can support a manager being in support of their employees' emotions also can make a really big difference. I love that you made that distinction to speak to the managers of managers because I've been in many situations where the manager of managers is only interested in getting performance. And if he or she has a toxic manager underneath them, but they're getting the numbers, they'll look away and they'll underestimate the impact that it's having on people and their motivation and the conversations they're having at dinner with their high school student who's about to go on and, (laughs) you know, explore this, right? But, right? I mean... Yeah. No, you're so right. And in fact, this is something that I also talk about a lot when it comes to emotional intelligence, which is we tend to not want to tell... When there's an EI problem, people tend to not want to face it for a variety of reasons. Uh, You know, they're not sure they're going to get a good response back or they're pretty sure they're not going to get a good response back, or as you described, you know, maybe the person's bringing in a ton of resources into the organization. But this is a visibility problem. In terms of the equation, it's very easy to see what, let's say, somebody who's got low emotional intelligence or not treating their employees well. And by the way, they're not the same thing necessarily. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Being low emotional intelligence means you're not good at reading other people's emotions, you're not good at understanding them, and you're not good at regulating them or your own. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have negative intent. It's not a skill set you have at that point, and it is a skill set that can be learned. But one of the things that the managers of folks who are having difficulty with this don't realize is that they see what the person brings in, let's say, in terms of sales or, or whatever other resources the organization gets. But what they don't see, to your point, they don't get an easily itemized number of the cost, the cost of turnover of the other people, the cost of people not working optimally, the psychic cost. I mean, there are lots of costs, but because they're not as visible, they don't get as much attention. You don't know how grateful I am for how well you articulated that. And just the insight that you shared is just, I'm just going to leave it alone. So thank you. You make a distinction between cognitive cultures and emotional cultures. So why are we on this topic? What are the differences and why do you think most leaders ignore managing the emotional aspects of work? Let's just pin this down one final time. Sure. I became very interested probably about 10 years ago. Well, even before I'd been writing about it for a long time, but I had the opportunity to do an empirical study on the concept of emotional culture. So, you know, we all know what culture is. It's what you do when sort of the boss isn't looking. Um, One actually really nice shorthand way to know what culture is, is what's rewarded and punished in the organization. And then the more formal way of thinking about it are the deep underlying assumptions, values, and norms around how people are supposed to behave at work and do behave at work. And there has been fabulous work done in the field on organizational culture and what I call cognitive culture, which are all the things I just said, but about how people think about work. But one of the things that as I thought about culture, and I I had already spent much of my career studying group emotion. 
And so I had studied group affect and collective affect, which is sort of what do people feel and how does that influence? But it occurred to me that at a cultural level, much of what culture is about is what you're expected to express at work and that the cognitive culture literature didn't touch very strongly on norms and values and deep underlying assumptions around, well, wait a minute, what emotions are we supposed to be showing in the workplace and which are we better off not showing? And equivalently, what emotions are we showing and then what emotions are we not showing? So, for example, you know, you said that you were in the financial service industry. When you were working in that industry, if you were to have been asked, well, what emotions am I supposed to be expressing at work? What would your answer have been? Not many. (laughs) Uh, I mean that sincerely. You know, in many cases, I worked for a few different organizations because I worked in the era where they were constantly being, they either failed or they were required. So gratefully, I kept getting on to the next new organization, but I saw several different approaches. So I was on the retail banking side, which is more customer oriented. And then on the brokerage side, which is very, very sales focused, you know, just hit the numbers and move on kind of a thing. And so at one point, I became the national sales manager for the brokerage business for one of the largest financial institutions. And I had come over from retail banking. And when I took over my new team of senior vice presidents, so these guys were very senior people, very experienced. They said, you know, your whole approach to managing people is never going to work with these brokers. And I went on within the first year to demonstrate that they were patently wrong. But it was because they thought people just want to be left alone. Salespeople don't want to be interfered with. They just want to be producing, producing, producing. So it's a long way of answering your question. But, you know, when I got to meet with these top brokers and went all over the country and met with them and said, you know, the assumption is is that you guys want to be left alone. Is that true? I said, like, what could I do for you to help you? Mm -hmm. And their first response was like, thank you for coming. Like, you know, they were, they were missing the love so much, you yeah. know? So, yeah. you know, I saw that even those guys who ideally weren't making any money if they didn't make a sale were desperate for attention, for coaching, for learning, for growth, all the same things everybody else was. Yeah. But it was operating in a culture of, you know, we just don't think about that. We don't do that. That's actually going to create a problem if you do it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and in this case, it's interesting because your description is one where it, it sounds like it was sort of a culture of almost like, you know, neutrality, anti-emotion entirely. And, you know, and there are some cultures that are cultures of fear. There are some cultures that are cultures of anger. And there are some cultures that are cultures of love. And where I tested this first was in a, a really wonderful, it was a really wonderful kind of study in a long-term care facility that I did with my colleague, Professor Mandy O'Neill at George Mason. And this study was a labor of love. It was a very, very elaborate study because one of the first questions, of course, people ask in general is, well, how do you even measure emotions? And by the way, they're eminently measurable and very, very reliably and multi-method. But in this case, the way we went about measuring emotional culture was we had um, observers on the units watching and the definition though of emotional culture is not actually how people feel it is what emotions employees are expressing in the workplace and the way we measure it is is we ask actually so we ask the observers to look and say well to what degree 
we were particularly interested in the culture of companionate love because we had looked at the basic emotions and there's a big debate about are there five, are there seven, are there 10? But it's pretty clear that one of the basic emotions is love. And of course, we weren't looking at romantic love. That is often a mistake that is made. But rather, we're looking at the most common, actually, type of love, including, by the way, in romantic relationships, which is companionate love. And companionate love is the feeling of affection, caring, compassion, and tenderness. And we thought that given this industry and given the type of work that all the people on the units were doing, that this would be the kind of emotional culture that would matter the most. And so the observers rated the companionate love they saw between the staff. So this wasn't staff to residents. The the ratings were based on staff to staff. And then we also had them complete self-reports, but they were serving as observer, not the observers, but we had the employees complete questionnaires where they were asked the question, to what degree do other employees on your unit show the following emotions and caring, compassion, affection, and tenderness to each other? And then finally, we also looked at cultural artifacts that would indicate love. Like, were there pictures of, you know, family? Did they celebrate birthday? And, you know, did they show that they were interacting with, with one another? And what we found resoundingly was that the culture of companionate love predicted all sorts of employee outcomes, including job satisfaction, better teamwork, less emotional exhaustion, which in this industry is really big, as well as absenteeism, so hard metrics. But then what we wanted to do is we wanted to see, well, could it even influence farther out? And so we looked at the resident outcomes and we found that indeed, how employees treated each other in terms of companionate love led to better resident quality of life and dignity and respect. And uh, not all residents could speak and be interviewed. So we had measures of observers of their affect, which was more positive. And also even in terms of health outcomes, there were less unnecessary trips to the emergency room. And then finally, we looked at the last ripple out, which was to families. And families, now think about how far this is now, right? Families on units where staff showed greater companionate love to each other also reported being more satisfied and being more willing to recommend the facility. Now, one thing I do want to stress, though, I said the important part of this, because it's a cultural element, is about the expression of love and not necessarily the feeling of it. But this does not mean that people won't ultimately begin to feel that emotion. And in fact, in our model, what we hypothesize is that there are two mechanisms that are leading to these outcomes. One is the normative mechanism, which means, hey, everybody around here is doing this, so I guess I better be doing it too. And we have like a really interesting quote where someone says, well, you know, if you just weren't loving, when you come here, you just kind of become more loving, right? But the second is, and we can talk more about it later, but is the concept that I've been studying for much of my career called emotional contagion. And that people are literally catching that emotion. And so when you are the recipient of being of the emotion, but also just when you yourself express it, you actually start to feel the emotion and it goes up in a positive spiral. So I have two questions for you. Sure. Why would we ever continue to lead with fear? based on what you said. Let's start there. Okay, well, I I love that question because I currently have a study and a finding with my two doctoral students, Konstantinos Kutifaras and Jacob Levitt, where we 
directly examined the influence of a culture of love and a culture actually more sort of of anger, which then induces fear in collegiate sports teams. And the reason that we looked in this setting is because, you know, you say, why would you ever manage with fear versus love? I don't think there are a ton of leaders around who would actively say, you know, I love managing with fear. I mean, some do, but I think it's become a little bit less common to at least hear them say it, except in sports. In sports, it's completely acceptable to, you know, say, yeah, you know, I, I get angry with them and I, I get them scared. And, and I think that could actually do a lot of damage, particularly to our young athletes. And so we literally just did this study and no surprise, but we found that a culture of love predicts athletic performance, both at the individual level and in terms of games, positively. Whereas a culture of anger either doesn't predict it at all or it's negative. And this is one of the first studies to kind of directly kind of examine this. And I think to even more directly answer your question, Mark, I think that the reason that managers sometimes feel like they need to lead with fear is that they don't really know how to motivate people. There is one benefit of fear. Fear does focus people's attention on the issue and can raise their energy. The problem is that what we know from the research literature is that then what happens is, yeah, you're now focused, but now when you actually have to work on the problem, your thinking is much more rigid, you don't make decisions as well, you get all these negative outcomes. But that's not necessarily intuitive to a lot of managers. And so they're thinking, okay, well, I mean, if I threaten people, then you know they won't wanna have that negative outcome, so they'll do what I want, and they're just not educated in knowing that, you know, no, that's not actually the case. I once spoke to a very large multinational insurance company. And when I got done, the national sales manager stood up and he said, I absolutely love everything that you said, but I have a question for you. If I get in the middle of my quarter and we are not on track to hit our goals, I go right to fear. So he goes, what do you think about that? And I said, well, you know, did you hear anything I just said over the last hour? I mean, it was, it was, it was astonishing. So there's an example of somebody who really, truly did express it. Like, that's going to be my go-to if I need to. And I thought about it after. It's like, well, how can he, in the context of just hearing why that's not the right thing to do, then express it in front of all of the other people who had just heard it. So he's revealing his strategy in front of all of his yeah. peers. And, and I just thought, wow, what a mistake. But I think it's because, this is my theory, mm -hmm. that a lot of managers don't trust themselves. So yeah. you get a down in the quarter, your numbers aren't there, you're seeing everybody else is succeeding, and you yourself go into fear. And yeah. so you say, the only way I'm going to do this is to start intimidating people rather than encourage, redefine the strategy, you know, do things that are much more oriented towards believing in the people to get you where you need to get to. Well, and it's funny you say that because my next sentence literally was going to be, I think it's because they're fearful. And because then they snap into this kind of action. So I agree with you completely. And, you know, it takes a certain amount of trust to be able to go against your own kind of, you know, wanting to clamp down and responses to fear. And I think also the other thing that happens is that managers often misunderstand that a culture of love does not mean a lack of accountability. 
And I think that they tend to tie fear with greater accountability. But you know what's so interesting for me about that? One of my areas of consulting is organizational culture more broadly. So both cognitive culture and emotional culture. And over the years, I've collected data on this. And I have data from over 50,000 people looking at what culture sort of best predicts employee accountability. So literally personal accountability for the work, which is exactly what that manager you were dealing with wanted. And what I have found is never, because I've I've sort of done this piecemeal and then looked at the data as a whole, never has a culture of fear positively correlated with employee accountability, ever. I mean, interestingly, going back to your new research, if you just look at who are the like most successful coaches in college basketball. And I picked that because those players turn over. You know, these days, a lot of them will play for a couple of years and then go to the NBA. So they don't even play a full four years. But let's just assume that you keep players for four years and then you lose them to graduation and you have to start all over. Yeah. It's like, well, how does somebody create a machine, if you will? How does somebody win year after year, 20 games, 25 games, get into the NCAA tournament? And if you look at the top coaches, they're all based in love. They're all Mike Krzyzewski at Duke actually wrote a book called Lead from the Heart. There's more to it. These guys, Jay Wright at Villanova, I mean, these are people that care deeply. They create this environment of love. So I want to dig into that with you. When I say the word heart, it sets off the touchy-feely bullshit alarm for a lot of people, and I know that. And that was one of the reasons I started the podcast. Now, you're saying love, which obviously has to like ring it even harder. So I think this is an audience that already gets it, but just in case there's somebody listening in for the first time who's like, what's this about? Like, you don't have to use the word love so much as you just have to behave in a way that creates those emotions and feelings, right? So yes, of course. And, you know, it's interesting. When Mandy and I first wrote about Companionate Love and we sent it into the journal, we actually chickened out. The construct is companionate love. So as an academic, I want to be true to the name of the construct. But we were like, you know what? Maybe this is going to be too much for people. And so we changed it to caring. But we really didn't like it because caring is only one component of companionate love. I mean, companionate love has affection, caring, compassion, and tenderness. And they're all kind of different from one another. And luckily, actually, it was very interesting. Our reviewers said, hey, you know, because we did talk about love then in the article. We just changed the title of the article. And they said, look, you're talking about love. You should call it love. And you know what? We completely agreed with them and since then have doubled down on it. And my view on it is that by almost kind of its provocative word, it gets people thinking. Now, having said that, I'm not dogmatic about this. And there have been some clients I've worked with who are just like, I remember one, one guy said to me, he goes, I can't even, it was, it was a company in, I think, in Great Britain. He said, I can't even get my, my people to love their spouses. They're definitely not going <laughs> to, they're definitely not going to do it in their, with a workplace, right? So I don't think dogmatism is ever a good idea. And so if the difference is that they feel more comfortable calling it caring, you know, within that kind of corporate environment, that's fine. With me, But I do think that from an academic perspective, it's very important to stay precise. And I also think that there is some benefit for businesses to understand that we are whole humans. We don't leave our emotions at the door. We don't leave our past experiences at the door of organizations. And one of the basic emotions 
is love and companionate love. And we also find that it influences so many things so positively that I think that, you know, we have to slowly acknowledge that, yes, it exists. I think what helps in my situation, though, is that sort of I'm so clearly an academic and a scientist about this as well. I'm very practical. I think, you know, if we're going into industry, we need to have things that are practical and that managers need to know what to do with them. But I think describing the science behind it makes the term more palatable as well. So while we're talking about companionate love, let's take the word love out of it. And I agree with you that if you explain the science and you understand the research of it, it's much more you can tolerate hearing the word love. If that is a word that, you know, you have offense to for whatever reason, it's crazy. But in the workplace, I get it. So I understand it. But let's say I tie your hands or your tongue behind your back and I say, okay, so I'm making you the CEO of a company now, you, Seagal. Mm -hmm. And it's a company that is unclear as to what its identity is. And so your first job is to come in and say, we're going to be this kind of a company. So these are the values. So based on your research, without using that word love or companionate love, describe the cultural elements that you would instill. So boil it down to what does it look like in real life? Yeah. Well, again, I would say I would hope that if I was the CEO, I actually could use the word love. But if I couldn't, there are probably um, at least three values I would instill. And actually, my big thing about culture is you shouldn't have more than three transcendent values. And so it would be the culture of caring. It would be the culture of joy, kind of enthusiasm, positivity as part of that. But it would also be a results-oriented culture, meaning the importance of results and excellence and high performance. Because one of the things I get asked a lot by senior leaders particularly is, well, wait a minute, I've got a culture of love, but somehow when I have this, my people feel like that means that there's like none of this accountability. And then they're surprised if I hold them accountable or I'm not, I behave in ways that they feel is like, well, wait, that doesn't seem very loving because they equate, or I would argue conflate love with lack of accountability. But I was telling you before that I've never seen a culture of fear predict personal accountability, the most consistent, positive predictor of a culture of accountability is the culture of love and the culture of joy. But I think that what a results-oriented culture would do, which is a cognitive culture, is it would give the expectation as well that we have both love here in the, and or caring, sorry, and, it is, and joy, but it is also in the service of excellence and doing what we do well. So that's what I would do. I mean, you've made the point that if you have the caring, joyful environment, that not only can it be results-driven, but in my experience, you can actually raise the bar. So when you're creating an environment where people feel so wonderfully supportive, and not just by their boss, but as you mentioned very early on, by their colleagues in terms of how they work and they can feel they can knock on their door and go in and not get their head bit off or, or they're not competing with that person for evaluations and they're offering help and support and people are asking how people are doing. All that collegiality creates this culture where people want to collaborate and cooperate and support. 
support one another and that ultimately drives performance. But I've also found that you can actually expect more when you lead this way. Yeah. So when people are having all of their needs met this way, it's like, well, why do we want to be mediocre again? Like, why do we want to just meet goals? Let's do something <laughs> extravagant, you know? Is that your experience? Well, it's not only my experience, but it's my data in the sense that there is a strong positive relationship between a culture of love and results-oriented culture, by the way, in my sort of 53,000 person data sample, and also in the studies that I've done. I usually go into a field within emotions and organizations, and then I do something, and then I move on to a different domain. But emotional culture, and particularly the culture of love, has captured me for a little bit longer because it is such a stunningly consistent predictor of all these positive down order effects in the workplace. Now, it's funny because from my perspective, it's not stunning in the sense of it's obvious. It's like, it's like well, this seems almost tautological, you know. If you are showing affection and caring and compassion, of course you are going to have better performance from your people. But for a lot of managers, including the ones you talked about earlier in the interview, who really don't understand it or are uncomfortable with the term or don't even know why we're talking about emotions in the first place, it's not obvious. And even to academics, it wasn't obvious, which is why it was the first set of work we needed to do to show that that was the case. I know you've been dying to get to this topic for a while here. So I got to make sure we have time to talk about emotional <laughs> contagion. So how are leaders' moods and energy? How do they influence team dynamics? Yeah, I'm only eager to talk about it because it's really the, the kind of communication fiber and basis I would argue, of all group emotion. It's the delivery mechanism. And what emotional contagion is, it is the process by which we catch emotions from one another. And before COVID, I used to say like a virus. I'm not liking saying that quite as much anymore. But the idea is it's a largely subconscious process. So it's not that it can't be conscious, but as recipients of contagion, it's largely subconscious. And the way that it works is it's primarily nonverbal. I mean, there is research showing that it also can come through social, like sort of computer-mediated communication, but it's largely nonverbal, so facial expression, body language, vocal tone. And what happens is that we see that in somebody else, and then the first thing we do is we actually we mimic them. Mm -hmm. So from the time that we are infants, we mimic our caretakers. And so we mimic that emotion. And if that's where we stopped, that would be weird because we would just all be walking around, you know, with smiles or frowns. But then through a variety of physiological processes that I, I won't bore your listeners with, we actually then feel the emotions. But this is what can be so insidious about emotional contagion, is that what the research shows is that for the most part, we don't know that we've caught the other person's emotion. We assume it's ours. And this is something I've been paying a lot of attention to and talking about a lot in this COVID time period, because part of what is making people so anxious and so irritable and so angry is not only their own anxiety and irritability and anger, which they're completely entitled to. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but when we're surrounded by other people who are emoting that, including the news, including social media, what it does is we catch their anger and anxiety and irritability too. And we don't recognize that that's what's happening. And we just kind of put it on top of our own. And we're 
more miserable than we even need to be. And so this is the other reason I, I just think it's a topic that is so important for people right now to understand. Um, I have a study with another doctoral student, Jared Scruggs, which we found that if you tell people about emotional contagion, like I'm doing right now for your listeners, although it was written, and then we followed up with them a week, two weeks, and a month later, their distress about COVID-19 and their anxiety had been lessened significantly. And emotional contagion, less susceptibility to emotional contagion was one of the processes for that. So do you have any like direct advice to managers listening in, in terms of how they carry themselves and any emotional leanings that they should be exhibiting right now? Yes. So I would say two things. I would say in general, managers need to be acutely aware of what kind of emotions they're expressing to their people. You know, the more power you get, the research shows, the less you're aware of your power. And so if you're coming into work and maybe you're really stressed and legitimately so, but your employees, well, now they see you on the camera for many people, not for all, but you know, you're coming in and you're looking, you know, stressed and angry. Not only are your employees cognitively trying to figure out, oh, what's going on with the boss today, but they have actually just caught your emotions. So I would say you need to be really thoughtful about what you are putting out there. And in today's time, with everybody sort of so heightened toward the negative, it's even more important to try to be out there and to try to show positivity. Now, I don't think it shouldn't become artificial because that will come through. But it's really trying to search sort of deeply inward to, all right, what part of the situation can I show some positivity or at minimum the caring and compassion that is part of companionate love? So if you go back to your values, the three values that you gave us, which is caring and joy and results oriented, and assume that the common denominator of all managers is results oriented. So it's the caring and the joy, perhaps, that is more often missing, right? I mean, you're accountable for results, so go out and get them however you will. But if you're hiring a manager today, and you're hiring managers for your organization, and you know that you have to be looking to see whether or not they can drive performance, but what else do you absolutely want to see in managerial candidates today? So what I would say is that it's broad. So what I would say within an affective perspective, I would want to hire people who have emotional intelligence, so are able to you know, read, understand, and regulate their own and others' emotions, who understand that this is an important part of work life, and who can bring a useful set of emotional skills there. And again, that does not mean that they always need to be kind of positive and happy. I mean, there are absolutely appropriate times. In fact, being emotionally intelligent means you know when and how to show the entire gamut of emotions as they're appropriate. But I would want to make sure that it's somebody who is aware of that and is aware of the importance of being able to get work done through other people, because we very rarely can just do the work ourselves. And I, I would actually also add to that list a manager who is very good at listening. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Seagal, before I let you go, I have a tradition of just letting the final comments be from my guest. And so what I want to do is I want to turn the stage over to you and ask you, is there anything about your work that we haven't discussed that you think would be really important for our audience to know? And I'm going to pin down something you said a minute ago. We're living through a really weird time with COVID. And by the time this gets out to people, I think there's not going to be anybody listening to this that isn't in full agreement with what you said a second ago about sort of the amped up anger and, you know, sort of mental and emotional distress that people are feeling and exhibiting. So any final thoughts? I know that's very broad, but uh, I'm just turning the stage over to you. No, I appreciate that. And I so I would say a couple of things. One relates to an emotion that we didn't touch on, but in the time of COVID could be really important that I've done research with, which is the emotion of loneliness. And Hakan Ochelik and I have a study on loneliness at work. And not surprisingly, you know, employees who are lonelier have poor work performance. But what's really interesting is the answer to why. And the reason why we find is that they're less affectively committed to their organizations and their colleagues find them less approachable. And you would think somebody who's lonely would actually be more approachable. Mm -hmm. But because of a variety of things, when you become lonely, you actually start to become very socially vigilant. You're not as kind of appropriate in how you interact with others. And one of the things I would say in the time of COVID is that we really want to be on the look for people in our organizations and in our lives who might be finding themselves in a place where they're very, very lonely. And that these are people who maybe we're able to touch base with more easily at work. You know, you walk by, you say, hi, that's kind of enough. But particularly as a manager, but not only, also as colleagues and as people in our our kind of home lives is checking in on people. Because the problem with loneliness is again, once you sink into it, it is very hard to come out of it. And so that would be one thing. The other thing has to do with what you've led with, which is I think we all need to sort of take a breath and realize that everybody around us, they're feeling these emotions that could kind of vary wildly. At the beginning, you know, there was a lot of fear and anxiety. I think we're now in a kind of irritability, anger (laughs) stage. I think, you know, we might get to depression. I mean, depending on the wave of what's happening, how long we're in the situation. And what that's doing is it's putting everybody on edge. And, you know, and I'm seeing this, that I'm seeing people who are normally, who are actually really good at EI or they're really good at regulating, who are not doing that as well. And I think we really need to be kinder and more sort of compassionate and loving to each other right now and also to ourselves. We're not going to get it all right. You know, we also can have emotions that aren't always the perfect emotions and particularly in times of heightened anxiety and and upset and to just slow it down a little bit and be a little bit more more open to the people around us not necessarily behaving perfectly but knowing how to try to help them that was brilliant and it just stimulated one more question for you so i'm not letting you go after after all that (laughs) i have one more question which is you know i mean obviously covid is bringing us through the sequence of emotions and now perhaps we're on edge and and angrier about the circumstances and i hate to think that we're going to head into depression but i do wonder in a positive way 
if you think that COVID is going to change minds and hearts around how we collectively lead. In other words, because we're tending to people where we're not seeing them and we're missing them ourselves, but also because our interactions are missing that just the normal human connection, just being present, feeling their energy, seeing how they react, all of those kinds of things, and then calling them regularly and finding out what's going on in their lives and realizing we're dealing, as you call them, the whole humans. Are you optimistic that that may have the power to shift people in terms of how they choose to manage going forward? You know, I think that's a great insight. And I think that really the loss of sort of that, the, the, the loss, again, not for everybody. I mean, there are, you know, definitely are people who are out there, but even the ones who are out there not dealing through computer mediated communications are, you know, they're wearing masks which mm. does hide a fair amount of our facial expression and they're socially distancing. So you can't even, you know, get, get that close. And I, I do think it's a great insight that, that it could be that that loss might make this part of the human connection component more salient mm. to managers. The question is how long does memory last? And I think it needs to be, then supported. And, you know, so I, I think it remains an open question, but I think that the experience of it, at least in the short term, I agree with you. I do think that's going to make people thoughtful and kind of appreciative of being able to meet in person once again. And actually, it's very interesting as it relates to love. One of the way that companionate love gets communicated actually is also through touch, like, you know, holding sort of somebody's shoulder or, and we haven't been able to do that either. So it'll be very interesting to see. Well, we'll leave it there. You are exceptional. And I said at the beginning, I was so excited that we could finally get you to come on the podcast. And this was everything that I hoped it would be and more. So on behalf of my entire audience, Seagal, thank you so very much for joining us. Well, and thank you so very much for having me. I just really enjoyed this conversation and, you know, to speak with a kindred spirit on this topic. So thank you. Here, (laughs) here. All right. Best to you. Stay safe and well. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to assure you that the heartbeat round will return next episode. We skipped it this time only, I promise. And please also keep me in mind as a virtual keynote speaker for your team's next meeting. I'm doing more of these now that COVID has closed down conferences and company meetings. And the truth is they're actually hugely effective. So please reach out and I'll explain why. And I, of course, want to thank my wonderful team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Josh Richards, Marjana Novkovic, and my producer and editor, Eric Oz. And I also invite you to connect with me Find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, and my new website, markccrowley.com, has a direct link to my email. And if you have any feedback for us on the show, we would surely love to hear it. Oh, and one more favor. Please introduce us to your colleagues and friends. We would love for you to help us get the word out on the Lead from the Heart podcast. And until next time, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.